And so friends, there is so much to share. But I have to bring this to a close and share this. That what is acceptable to you and what is not acceptable to you. I'll share with you what is unacceptable to me. It is unacceptable. Whether a child should live or die is determined by which part in the world they are born. It is unacceptable that poverty should rob children of their rights. Walk with me. Imagine their future. You're listening to the voice of Richmond Wandera from Uganda. It was in August 2018. I was sitting in church and I heard one man speak on the topic of poverty. I don't think of myself as an overly emotional person, but it was in that moment that you just heard that I started crying and it was awful an awfully ugly cry. And I was the only one. I trace a lot of my inspiration for engaging in humanitarian work back to this moment. It was a moment where I felt a burden and a pressing on my life that there are things in this world which are unacceptable and I'm not gonna sit on the sidelines. Welcome back to Voices Unheard. My name is Marcus, and on this podcast, we give platform to the stories of those in developing countries around the world. In today's episode, I got to sit down with Richmond Wandira and hear his story. Richmond needs no further introduction. Here is his story of growing up in Uganda. My name is Richmond Wandera. I was born in a family of six. I was the third born among six children. I had a very playful, humorous dad, and his name was Stephen. Uh, I had a mum who, <laughs> I, I remember people calling her the lady who you call when you're having a bad day. Uh, she was talkative. She could talk your ear off. She was jolly and, and happy. And we had really good times as a family growing up. My father was a lawyer and he was able to take care of us. In fact, many of us from the first born to me, who was the third born, were in school. And uh, the, my younger siblings were too young to be in school. Uh, but there was no doubt in our minds that when their time came, they would go to school because my father could afford. My mother, on the other hand, uh, she was married off as a late teenager. So at the age of 17, she was married off. By the time she was 25, she had all six of us. So she knew to stay home, take care of us. But her background wasn't the most helpful because evidently my great-grandparents did not believe in educating girls. And as a girl, she knew to be prepared for marriage, and she got married, and she, her life was, was okay. The fact that she was settled and she was provided for, and she, was, she loved her six children, and that was good. But I remember some of the funniest days of our childhood, my father driving recklessly towards a, a football game because he was so passionate about football. And we were at the back of his pickup truck and we were slamming it and singing his football club. And he was elated. He was thrilled. You could just see him full of life. I remember those memories fondly. And I also remember the day when he tried to pick all of us up, like all six of us, including my mom. He ended up failing, but he, he believed he had. <laughs> and so I do remember some of those really, really light moments that I had with our father, Stephen. But it wasn't long. Uh, again, the chaos that was going on in our country, many lives being killed, eventually came to our home and changed our trajectory as a family forever. Uh, I think some of the hardest and darkest era of our history really began in 1971 when Idi Amin became president. He was an army general who turned out to be 
one of the most brutal dictators our nation had ever seen. Uh, during his regime, 1971 to 1979, Uganda saw more deaths than ever before. Uh, many people thought it was the end of the world. Uh, but in 1979, when Idi Amin was overthrown, uh, I think there was a huge anticipation in people's hearts that finally we're going to have some fresh air blow in. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Between 1979 and 1986, Uganda had very many presidents. Uh, and all, none of them came into power by the ballot box. Uh, most of them came into power uh, by the gun. And so leading a rebel group and fighting your way to the top. <laughs> One time Uganda had a president that only lasted uh, three to six months. It was three months of effective presidency and in six months another president was declared. Uh, all, this, all this reckless uh, fighting and lack of democracy has made Uganda what it is today. Uh, in a nutshell, I would say Uganda right now is the world's second leading country with the youngest population. And that's significant because if you have over 70% of your population below the age of 30 years, that's not just a political and a social and a civil crisis. In spiritual terms, that also paints a spiritual crisis because of lack of spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and mentors and older people to teach the younger people how to live. It's at this point in the story where everything changes. A family doing well off in Uganda takes a turn for the worse. I was only eight years old, Marcus, when uh, my father was killed. He was killed in the presence of my mom. And on that day, we didn't just lose our father. We also lost our mother in one way, shape or form. Uh, like I described earlier, my mother was a quite a happy woman. But now the fact that my father, Stephen, was gone, she had to uh, figure out a way of taking care of her six children. Now remember, this time she's only about 25 years old uh, with six children. She has no schooling, no background in skills or trades. Six children uh, looking to her for hope. In Uganda, there is no government support for women who fall into that category, who've lost their husbands or are unable to take care of themselves. Essentially, no, no government support, no welfare, not, none of those programs. And uh, here she is. Not just the heart, but her whole body uh, shut down, was affected physically at the killing of my father. With those events coming in and the fact that we also didn't own the house that we lived in, it was a house that was given to my father because of his work when he lost his job. Hardly a few weeks later, we were kicked out of the house. With nowhere else to go, my mother ended up finding one of the smallest places in the slum called Naguru. And I remember when she announced to us that we have to go to Naguru. Um, <laughs> Naguru's reputation alone uh, just scared everyone because that's a place of hopelessness. I mean, it was a place of lots and lots of people who were just waiting to die or waiting on whatever life will bring throw at them. If you can, if I paint a picture now, if you can imagine a sea of houses, a slum, by that time it was about 19,000 in number. Uh, no places for children to play, ducts where people are pouring water right in front of their homes and water is snaking down all through to the valley. 
and chaos and drinking and drugs, no school, no education, no health. When rain comes or when the rainy season sets in, um, you can almost be sure that the radio is going to announce that either cholera is breaking out or a certain disease is broken out in Naguru. I mean, that was the reputation. So when my mother said, it's time to go to Naguru, uh, you can imagine the fear that gripped us. But then we, we <laughs> the rubber hit the road and we were off to Naguru. ended up into this roomed one-roomed house. I mean, you walk in and you see all the rays of sun piercing through. The roof is not tight. It's not complete. I look at the floor. Our floor was not cemented. It was dirt. And we began to realize <laughs> life has changed. But I think what turned everything around was when... Uh, I mean for the worst, not for the better. For around was when my mother announced that there's no more money for food. And Marcus, that announcement sent us to the streets. So what began as visits to the street became a lifestyle. You know, you wake up in the morning, you're not in school anymore, that door is closed. You don't have a father to tell you how to live or where to go, where not to go. Father is gone. Health-wise, that door is also closed. And so you got to figure out a way of surviving. And so and my mother's health was just deteriorating every month. And so she was just in bed. And we had to grow up. It was no longer time to be a child. Uh, that those days were over. It's now time to, to take responsibility. So I took responsibility of my six-year-old sister, whose name was Doreen, and I cared for Doreen. Uh, Richard and Ronald were very good at caring for Raphael and Sharon, so these were the older ones taking care of the younger ones. And so what began as visits to the street became this lifestyle, and we just kept uh, living like that. Life as a young child in Naguru slum is tough. It's not a place you want to grow up. Richmond told me stories of the two hardest days of his childhood growing up in the Guru slum. I think some of the hardest days, Marcus, for me, uh, I think, uh, let me just see if I can paint a picture of those days, which I consider the hardest days of my childhood. The first one was when we were so hungry that I literally ran after a moving lorry that was bringing bananas from the countryside to sell to the market. I, I, you can picture that. I mean, this lorry is driving on, on, on the road and it's going at a good speed and I'm running behind this truck, knowing that it finally slows down at the intersection. And I caught up with it. Plucked bananas from a moving truck and went back to my sister with bananas in my hands. Oh, no child should do that to survive. No child. The other day that I remember was the day when a huge storm came in the middle of the night. I was scared. I just didn't like lightning. I didn't like 
this thunder that comes through big storms, it was already naturally a, a thing that had almost freaked me out. I always got this trepidation whenever the big storms came. But that night was a very unique night because that storm came with hail, it also came with strong winds. And across Naguru Slam, because of the corrugated iron sheets that's on most homes, when the hail comes, no one can sleep. It's the loudest thing you can possibly imagine. As these pieces of ice hit the roofs of, of these homes. So that was loud, it was scary. But then sadly for us, it got worse than most of the homes. Because our center iron sheet was blown off by that massive wind. Marcus, that night, our home became one giant bucket. I mean, we literally scrambled and picked things up and put them close to our chests and then stood on the side as water just flooded the house. We couldn't run out, you couldn't stay in. I mean, it was just chaotic. Marcus, I, I don't know that people in Australia can understand that. I don't know. But if they are able to transport in their minds their imagination and to consider that there are places in this world where dignity is actually stripped from people, where someone's self-identity, self-image is literally torn off of them and uh, the very fabric of a person's soul or of a child's soul can be so stripped away by, by their experience that they stand helplessly looking and they're never the same again. And so as people think about that deeply, uh, Marcus, I'm, I'm hoping that young people in Australia, the, the young adults in Australia, will be able to consider this fight and say, look, enough is enough. I can't just remain pursuing my will and doing whatever I want, buying the next big toy and spending my money the way I please, yet I could actually make a difference. Marcus, my desire is that our listeners today will desire deeply and seriously to make a difference. And when that desire is full in their hearts, the difference opportunity will come. It always does. Because right in the middle of this desperation, my mother realized if things continue that way, we're each going to die. And so she reached out for help. And she was directed to a church. And my mom was not a believer. We were not Christians. And my mother goes off and she picks up her courage. Uh, I mean, you can imagine going into a religion that you don't believe or you don't have not interacted with. It's like, I'm a Christian today. It's like, but if you tell me going to a Buddhist temple and see if you can if ask for help for your child, I'm like, that's weird. Like, how do I walk in there? What, how, how do they dress? What do you say? Like, uh, is, it, is it okay for women to do that? I mean, there's just all these questions that sometimes if, if I don't have time to really unpack that, I don't get a chance to talk about. But it's a difficult thing to just go into a church to ask for help. And my mother did. My mother went to the church because she was desperate. And uh, she was utterly shocked, Marcus. Utterly shocked at how fast people at the church came to our home and took pictures of us, learned about our birthday information, our story, and, you know, where we were in our lives. And, uh, Marcus, that was the beginning of hope for me. Life for Richmond, his mother, and siblings was pretty bleak. And in this moment of desperation, when his mother goes to a church for help, in that moment, the direction of their life story changes. 
I asked Richmond to recall that day and instantly his face lit up. I could never forget that day. I mean, <laughs> never, never, never. I recall I was standing at, uh, we have something called the jackfruit tree. So there was a massive jackfruit tree in front of our home. And I was standing there while my mother was uh, probably about 25 meters from me and she was cleaning the front, sweeping. Just She, was, she liked cleanliness uh, despite of where we are. So she could sweep um, and so uh, this worker from Compassion comes. And uh, so from a distance, I see my mom is talking with this guy. And then all of a sudden, my mother throws down the broom that she was using to sweep. And she just goes off. It was the loudest thing I have heard. And my mother is turning around and turning around with her shoulders shaking in every direction. And that's our tradition of dance, by the way. I come from the Vagisa tribe and across uh, Uganda, we are known for shoulder dancing. And so my mother begins to shake her shoulders rhythmically in such a beautiful and I looked at my mom and I knew that's good news. And so I run to my mom and my mom says to me, hey, Richmond, you've just got a sponsor. That was the beginning. Uh, I remember us rejoicing for days and then running off to the Compassion Project at the local church. Compassion is an organisation that operates by child sponsorship. As a sponsor, you choose a child in a developing country. And for 48 Australian dollars a month, they receive healthcare, hygiene training and food when they visit the Compassion Centre, which operates out of the church in that local area. Compassion runs regular health checkups and monitors the education process of the sponsored children. For Richmond, this means he can go back to school. Anytime he feels sick, he can go straight to the hospital and he doesn't have to worry about the bill. Compassion will take care of it. As a Compassion sponsor, you get to build a relationship with your sponsor child through writing letters to your child. All around the world, 1.9 million children are sponsored through Compassion. I asked Richmond, who are the kind of people who sponsor kids? So um, my mom obviously had this picture that uh, typical sponsors are people who are probably mid-aged people or older people who've worked for a while and they have some disposable income and uh, they're able to help the poor. Okay, so in the way, there was this stereotype of the typical sponsor. So my mom sits in a chair and then she's told that my sponsor, listen, that my sponsor is a 15-year-old girl called Heather. <laughs> I mean, my mom almost fell off the chair. She's just like, there is just no way. This, this girl could easily be my daughter. And uh, that, that, that alone has changed me, Marcus. It's changed my stereotype of the people God will use. And I believe that we are entering a space and an age where the younger people will be making a big difference. A bigger difference than people will give them credit for a bigger difference than the generation gone past expects of them. I think young people are stepping into that space where they want to make a difference, not tomorrow, they want to make a difference now. And uh, they're no longer impressed with some of this materialism and this emptiness that comes with uh, spending and spending and spending and yet there is no real return on investment. They're like, no, um, I think there is a general sense in which people or want what is authentic, what is true, what actually makes a difference. And there's people moving away from this empty uh, way of living to wanting to actually make a difference. And I think that's one of the things that I, I picked up from Heather, who was my sponsor. 
Heather's choice. Uh, this let, let me just illustrate it this way. Heather, at the age of 15, with all the distractions that come to the girls at the age of 15, she decided she was going to take a babysitting job in order to earn enough money to take care of me. Think about that, Marcus. A 15-year-old taking a babysitting job to take care of some boy in Africa who she just will never probably meet or even relate to or, or benefit uh, from. She decided to do that. That's a decision that can only be <laughs> explained sometimes from the perspective of the gospel or just the highest level of beauty uh, of the human, of mankind. A line that best describes Heather's decision is, Heather decided to live simply so I could simply live. And that single act changed my life forever. I, I look at where I am now. Um, and I realized that I am healed in every way. So let, let me give a little bit of explanation to what I mean, uh, healed in every way. Because in my mind, poverty is more complex than most people think. If you asked most people to define poverty or to describe poverty or to talk about poverty, most people will talk about poverty in very physical terms. For example, they'll use the word, say, hey, Marcus, describe a poor person or a child in poverty. Most people will think in terms of, oh, that child doesn't have food, doesn't have warm clothing, doesn't have a roof over their head, uh, goes thirsty, doesn't have access to clean water. And so those are the terms in which most poverty will be described. Uh, but Marcus, uh, I know another side of poverty, and I think that side is more evil, it's more horror, it's more destructive. And uh, unfortunately, that side is invisible to the human eye. It's the psychological side of poverty. It is the unseen monster who speaks to a child and says, you are nothing. You deserve what you're going through. Nobody wants you. Nobody will ever want you. You don't have a permission to dream. What's that you're talking about? Wanting to be a pilot one day or wanting to be a doctor one day. Forget it. You didn't have food the previous night. How could you, you won't even make it to next month. What are you talking about? Wanting to be a teacher. You know, it's that constant thing. And tell us children they're ugly. They are unwanted. And, uh, you know, Marcus, I suffered through that kind of poverty. I couldn't escape it. And I, I recall clearly that even if even when I was sponsored and food began to be provided and I got clean clothes and all that, that had registered something in my identity uh, that needed to be removed. Uh, that lie had to be confronted. When I think about it a little bit deeper, I see that that invisible poverty, that psychological poverty, that self-crushing poverty that kind of speaks constantly to these children, cannot be overcome by throwing money at it. There is no amount of money you can throw at that poverty to overcome it. There's no amount. That poverty is overcome by, again, the invisible things. The things such as words. My sponsor used the words, Richmond, I love you. Just one line reversed a thousand thoughts that were negative in my mind. Richmond, I'm praying for you. 
she was she was very good at using my name in her letters uh, to me, and that's what Compassion does marvelously, giving sponsors the opportunity to write to their children and their children opportunity to write to their sponsors. And right now, they've taken it to a new level now using technology, where right on someone's iPhone or Samsung or whatever phone they're using, they're able to record something directly to the child. And it's just become so much better, thank God for our technology. I began to hear these words that I had no access to. Marcus, in my space, very rarely would you hear positive words. All the senses, whatever they brought into the life of the child was dark and destructive and hopeless. I mean, whenever I looked around, this drunkard is fighting this one and this house has just fallen on this lady and her child and they're going to be buried. And I look this way and this child is uh, jumping into a gully where there is uh, dirty water going and there's syringes and needles and reservoirs. I mean, every time I looked around, nobody's going to school. Nobody's hoping for... And so... All the senses, what I saw, what I heard, what I felt, what I smelled, was just constantly against the human spirit. Uh, but then through the letters comes through words like, Krishna, I love you, I'm praying for you. Heather sent me stickers, uh, simple things. Stickers, she never forget, forgot my birthday. She sent me a Christmas card one day that had music in it. I opened this card and it just went, I was out. <laughs> I was out to my friends to just show them what I had got. And, and Marcus, we must see that it doesn't take much to change the world of a child. It doesn't. And for anyone who says, no, I'll wait until I'm older and I have all this disposable income, then I will make a difference. There's a lot of opportunity that's passing by. And procrastination has a huge cost. There are kids who will not be around who, if helped now, will be the rich ones tomorrow. And so, for me, just encountering compassion and being connected to a sponsor, a sponsor that loved to write and being enabled to go back to school and to have health provided for me and to have a space which was safe. I mean, I loved going to church, even though it wasn't uh, like a sponsored day or a compassion day. I could just spend time at church and there are merry-go-rounds and there are seesaws and the swings. I could, you could find me sweating under the sun. I'm just rotating on those things because, I mean, that was a safe place for kids. Uh, so I got access to that because I was sponsored. And uh, sponsorship really, really changes not just the life of the child, but it changes the church, it changes the community, it changes nations. And I see that over and over again when I just, not just look at my own life, but I look at the life of all my friends where we are. And not, not all of them are somewhere in like members of parliament or leaders uh, of massive organizations, no. But some of them are just, you know, good stay-home moms with just a good heart and transformed character taking care of their children. Uh, and, and because they received love, they're able to give love. And, and we're seeing this over and over and over again. And I think that those massive changes uh, that happened in my life have contributed to the person that I am today. Now that Richmond could go back to school, he finished his education, went on to complete a bachelor's degree in accounting, and then went on to complete a master's degree in spiritual formation and discipleship, and then went on to complete a PhD on the philosophy of leadership. With all this success and achievement in the field of academic research, Richmond could have moved away from his community and started a new life in a new place. But that isn't the case with Richmond. What Heather did in her action to live simply, 
so that others can simply live rubbed off on Richmond. So I'm still part of the very community that I grew up in. It's many years later. I've gotten an education. I have my bachelor's degree in accounting and I practiced that for a while and I had my master's degree in spiritual formation and discipleship and I've done that. I went on to pursue my PhD work in philosophy of leadership and so I've got the the skills, uh, the academic research ability to work in different other places. But I look at my people and I look at the children, I look at the youth and I look at the future and I say the same words as D.L. Moody said. He said that if I were to live my life all over again, I would focus on children. And Victor Hugo said that children are the handle with which we hold the future. I realize that investing heavily right now in transforming the lives of children and developing young people that of character that will be decision makers tomorrow, that's where you make the difference. That's how you change the world. And I could go and get a job and be satisfied in other places. And that's great and nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I think there is a wiser investment of a life uh, where you invest in people. Invest in people. So I, I would say, Marcus, that that statement, live simply so others can simply live, has really changed me and my wife, Rosette. I'm now married to a beautiful lady called Rosette. This made a decision for us almost already on where we will live. It's made a decision which community we'll spend our life in. It's helped us make a decision on how to live um, with less so that someone else can live with more. Um, we are now sponsoring two children. The first child we sponsor is in Uganda, so that's my home country. But the other child is in Tanzania. Dear young Muslim boy called Benjamin, uh, his father died under similar circumstances as mine. And so that's how we were drawn to sacrifice and sponsor this child. We've also adopted one child who lives with us today. And uh, we, it's a decision. Uh, if you think about this concept of volunteering, when someone willingly chooses to live with less so someone else can live with more, it's almost like what Christ said. Christ said this, he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay down. Okay, this is Christ saying, nobody takes my life from me. No one could. I mean, from the beginning of Jesus' life, when he was almost, when he first pronounced that this scripture has come true today after reading Isaiah, and they said, nobody can fulfill the scripture except the Messiah. You're calling yourself the Messiah, and they're driving him out, wanting to throw him over a cliff. This is a whole congregation unable to throw him over a cliff. And he, the Bible says he walked right through them, and he was on his way. No one could take Jesus' life from him. He laid it down. And the whole world is different. People are saved. People are freed from their sin and all this brokenness because one person willingly laid their life down. That's the idea of living simply so that someone else can simply live. It's a voluntary choice. Look, I don't need to get the latest this and the latest that and the latest that. To please who and to what end? Because what's latest today is absolute tomorrow. I mean, it just that's just the, the cycle of life. So a person can decide, look... I will live simply so others can simply live. And, and that decision to live simply frees up not just finances, it frees up other things such as talent. 
So a person who is like, let's say, a really skilled accountant or a really skilled fundraiser or a really skilled uh, IT person, a really skilled uh, person can decide and say, look, I'm going to live simply. Okay, by living simply means I'm going to live with less. I could go and hang out with my friends all these hours in the week or I could decide to spare some of these hours and help a non-profit organization uh, become better at what they do or help this refugee family that's coming here for hope learn how to speak English. So yeah, uh, we've decided that we're going to live it out. We're just not going to talk about it, just talk about it. We're going to live out what it looks like to live simply. So others can simply live, to live with less, or someone can live with more, to, to voluntarily lay our will, our desire down so that we can do God's will. Richmond now runs the church which sponsored him as a young boy in the Guru slum. I love that Richmond's story is a beautiful circular narrative. I don't know if his sponsor Heather ever imagined making such a difference at the age of 15. I asked Richmond if people would like to sponsor children with compassion like what Heather did for Richmond. Where can they go to do so? Well, uh, compassion.com.au is where you'd find a list of the next kids that are needing rescue. I want to implore all our listeners, uh, please make a decision now, uh, not tomorrow, because procrastination costs a lot. Uh, Some of these kids will not be around tomorrow. And so uh, sponsor a child today, uh, rescue a child, change a child's trajectory. Like I said earlier, it doesn't take that much to change the life of a child or the world of a child. Uh, but you can actually make a difference and know at least a name and say, look, I, I came alongside Richmond or Richard or Lillian or whatever child. And, and I was just a part of that. I want to be this child's friend uh, to connect with them. And if it means supporting them, I want to do that as well. I think that's a simple decision, but it's a seed into the future. To finish off my conversation with Richmond, I asked him one final question. What is your dream for the world? Well, I'm, I dream of a world that, I'm going to use the word, inspires the human spirit. And I won't explain what that means, but maybe let me phrase it this way. I dream of a world that is safe for children. I dream of a world where people love with such deep compassion and authenticity that all this distrust and suspicion is gone. I dream of a world of a united people, no matter what their differences are. I dream of a world that knows Jesus because nobody teaches that better than Christ and his word. And so as I pray for the West, I pray that the West will not just be consumed with sorting out the problems within their own countries, but they might also look across and say, look, how can we join in the fight and help even the poorest of the poor countries uh, in their fight? Because we can. And that's my prayer. There you have it. That was my conversation with Richmond Wandira. If you would like to sponsor a child with compassion, please visit their website, compassion.com.au and you'll be able to see photos of these beautiful children waiting to be sponsored. I'm looking on their website right now and I can see Samuel, who is two years old, living in Colombia, and he's been waiting 432 days for a sponsor. Or Edith in Togo, who is eight years old and has been waiting for a sponsor for 425 days. And what's awesome is you can search for and sponsor a child who has the same birthday as you. Thank you for joining the conversation on this podcast, Voices Unheard. This is a new podcast and one of the best ways you can help me give a platform for these voices to be heard is by sharing it with someone you know who will be inspired by this kind of work. 
I want to challenge you to think of two people who you can share this podcast episode with. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a review so that podcast streaming platforms will recommend this to other people. Thank you for joining the conversation. We'll see you next time.